that's why the most savage come back to like conspiracy theorists about the FBI and stuff. Uh, to me, mm. it's always been like, the no, FBI they don't care, care about you. you. Yeah. And it always, whenever I say it to people, they get so butt hurt. <laughs> and I'm like, no, they really don't care about you. Like, you're so boring. Mm -hmm. Commit a crime first, and then maybe. And then maybe they'll give you some attention. It's like no, the believe me, you, you don't need a VPN. You're insignificant and worthless, and your life means nothing. Mm, that's what I tell myself every day before going to bed. You don't need a VPN. <laughs> I don't need a VPN. I'm worthless. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. I'm Brevin. I'm Stevie. And I'm Sam. No revolution today. Uh, there might be revolutions of knowledge, but not in order of speaking, uh, because it didn't go well last time, and it broke all of our brains. It hurt. Uh, but yeah, uh, here we are. New week. New us. Uh, how's how's everybody doing? Tired. Grad school is is grad school. It's grad school. Uh, is grad school. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a whole thing. So, have you figured out plasma yet? Oh my gosh, plasma physics is insane. I've just figured out that it's really difficult, much like reading. Mm, then that would be the problem with plasma. Exactly. Our new spin-off podcast coming <laughs> fall it's, 2021. It's just me reading off my plasma textbook because I sure can't teach you anything. <laughs> it's you reading your homework problems and saying, please, please put the answers in the comments. <laughs> please, for the love of God, someone. Very nice. Uh, Sam, what are we drinking? I am drinking a nice cup of tea again. Uh, this time it is moroccan mint green tea i do like me some moroccan mint in oxford there was a great little uh i don't know yeah if it was like maybe turkish restaurant that had great you would get your own little pot of uh mint tea so good mm. it's a good time i never went there but that does sound very good mm -hmm. that would be uh, turkish mint tea though not moroccan mint that's true that's true i i, I guess i don't know what uh moroccan mint is but Actually, nor do I. I. This is my second cup today, and I still don't know what it is. All right. Uh, Steven, how about you? I'm not quite as classy as Sam. I am just having some uh, sparkling water. It's uh, like off-brand LaCroix, because I'm too cheap to get the actual LaCroix. So it's water that has the just the slightest hint of uh, raspberry that makes, makes you think of fruit, but don't actually taste fruit. Mm, like like someone saying just the, the name of a fruit in another room. Exactly. Mm, yeah. Man, we had a great... I forget what episode that was where we did all of the LaCroix. All the LaCroix. Uh, um, that was great. Jokes. That was excellent. That was a good one. Uh, as for myself, uh, I am having a, a lovely uh, two fingers of Evan Williams green label um, just because I don't feel like uh, it's green quite worth label? it to tap my... Yeah, I know. It's... it's it's. I didn't want to tap my, my better bourbons on a Monday night. I'm going to save them for a more special occasion but i guess I, I really just need to get on this tea train because uh i'm missing out and uh my wife chooses some very excellent teas that i could you know sound super classy above y'all as opposed to just having bourbon every time i don't know moroccan Wait, mint it's gonna be difficult to top it, it's from trader joe's so like you could easily get it yeah yeah fair all right but but not, you're not tapping into your finer bourbons, like not tapping into your Evan Williams black label that costs a full two dollars more. Touche, <laughs> <laughs> touche. And and this is why I will never run out of money because I don't buy expensive things. Mm -hmm. uh, but speaking of expensive things, at least in terms of cost to our civilization, uh, chapter nine, the Renaissance and the Reformation. 
is the chapter that we have, or yes, the chapter that we have this week. He manages in, I didn't really count how many pages, maybe 30 pages, manages to completely summarize all relevant and important aspects of both major movements spanning, you know, 500 years or whatever. Uh, and he didn't leave anything out. So it's actually quite the accomplishment. Uh, so leading us off, I believe, with the Renaissance portion, and maybe a bit more, I, I didn't actually check because I'm not in charge of notes, so I don't have to know. But Stephen, lead us yes, off. In, yes, indeed. I'm the Renaissance man, as it were. Uh, so the ancient times are now behind us, and McGillicris turns to the Renaissance and Reformation in Chapter 9. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, we do kind of get the so-called Dark Ages thrown in as a bonus, as he'll often be comparing the Renaissance characteristics with those of the Middle Ages. After all, there's little reason to go over the Renaissance if there's nothing distinguishing it. Uh, he opens with the note that the Renaissance is distinguished by a, quote, standing back. Uh, but that this time the standing back is accompanied with a great deal more self-consciousness than that of the standing back of the ancient world. He tells of Petrarch, one of the first great Renaissance writers, who is said to be the first person to think of climbing a hill for the view. Uh, note the standing back nature of climbing a hill for the view. You're you're doing it to step back and get perspective on that view. Uh, note that he doesn't speak of the utility of the experience, but rather its beauty. McGilchrist rushes to point out that uh, the great turning points of Western civilization, much like that of the ancient world, begins uh, as uh, symmetrical, and this is no exception. Uh, quote, the standing back is, if one can put it that way, in itself hemisphere neutral, a function of the bilateral front, frontal lobes, end quote. Said differently, perspective becomes rediscovered. The late Greek painters knew about it, but it is a lost art form until the Renaissance. Miller's, uh compares the painting of Bishop Blessing and Annual Fair in the 10th century to the ideal city painted in, the 14th, in 1470. The Annual Fair equates size with importance. Dimensions and depth are disregarded. However, the ideal city places emphasis on precision of proportions and depth. Where is he going with this? Uh, simply that perspective is about individuation, which is both right and left hemisphere oriented. They just approach it differently. Quote, perspective is, on the one hand, the means of relating the individual to the world, enormously enhancing the sense of the individual as standing within the world, where depth includes and even draws in the viewer through the pole of the imagination. And, on the other, a means of turning the individual into an observing eye, a geometer coolly detached from his object's space, end quote. The idea of lived time also emerges. Uh, contrasted to the more general sense of the impermanence of all things, this is about the transitory nature of particular individuals and cultures. This enables one to see one's own time, culture, and even self in the context of a broader history, and is distinctly right hemisphere oriented. Uh, he goes on to cite some lovely lines of poetry uh, that note the effects of time on one's beloved, but also on oneself. Uh, what comes of this is a profound connectedness between people. Emotions are now viewed as interpersonal. My emotions are not my own, but rather they pass back and forth between me and others, passing the bounds of time and space. Quote, what we feel arises out of what I feel for you, feel for what I feel about your feelings about me. I had to go about that quote like five times to make sure I actually typed it out right. Uh, and, about and about many other things beside. It arises from the betweenness, and in this way, feeling binds us together. And more than that, actually unites us, since the feelings are shared. Yet the paradox is that those feelings only arise because of our distinctness, our ability to be separate, in distinct individuals that come, that go, in separation and death, end quote. Here I will certainly make a shout out to uh, one of my, actually probably my favorite movie, Cloud Atlas, for being an excellent uh, uh, arbiter of this idea that uh, the decisions we make, the relationships that we have surpass time and space. It's, uh, if you haven't read it or you haven't uh, seen it, would highly recommend I do got to say, just butting in here, yeah. the, the aesthetic of liking Cloud Out of liking Cloud Atlas as your favorite book or whatever 
combined with David Foster Wallace is like really, really, I don't know, like early 2010s. Uh, it's going to be offensive if, if I say it, but anyway, but early like, you know Lord or yeah, edgelord. <laughs> I don't know. I'm yeah. a, I'm a misunderstood, brilliant white 20 something year old white philosophy undergrad is what I look <laughs> I mean, you know, which you're is, not. Which wrong. is what Stephen was in the tw- in early 2010s. Like, That's why exactly. I didn't want to say So it. I mean, <laughs> if, the, if the shoe fits, I'll I'll go ahead and just lean mm-hmm. into it. Uh, to be fair, I haven't seen Cloud Atlas at all, so you you'll have to convince me one way or another whether it, I should actually watch it. I've heard it's quite long, so it is exceedingly long, but it is oh, it's brilliantly done. The the soundtrack is sublime. The acting is well done. The the story to- oh, it's it's excellent. Okay. Uh, Revan just needs to, you know, open his heart to good stories. But speaking of good stories, Shakespeare. Uh, McGillicris has a short aside discussing the Bard, in which he praises his plays as, quote, constituting one of the most striking testimonies to the rise of the right hemisphere during this period, end quote. He goes on to say, quote, there is a complete disregard for theory and for category, a celebration of multiplicity and the richness of human variety, rather than the rehearsal of common laws for personality and behavior according to type. Shakespeare's characters are so stubbornly themselves and not the thing that fate or the dramatic plot insists that they should be, that their individuality subverts the often stereotyped pattern of their literary and historical sources, end quote. It definitely made me want to go read some Shakespeare. Uh, The arts on the whole exhibited right hemispheric mode of being in some rather interesting ways. Uh, The idea of caricature emerged, where the nature of the thing being painted is retained, but its likeness is removed. Quote, the genius of caricature is, as Gombrich and Chris pointed out, to have revealed that similarity is not essential to likeness, end quote. Similar to the discoveries mentioned in the last chapter, portraits in the Renaissance were typically left-facing, right hemisphere favoring, and there was a tendency for the light sources in paintings to be favoring the left visual field, again, right hemisphere. Even the views of the body were distinctly right hemisphere based, or biased, rather. Uh, while the middle-aged viewed the left side as literally sinister, that's where we get the word from, uh, but when we get to the Renaissance, uh, for example, in the courts, uh, the superior, the quote, superior beauty of the left hand, end quote, was considered essential for courting. The left side was considered, quote, the more beautiful side, finer, more gentle, more truthful, more in touch with feeling. The entire left side of the body took on the cast of beauty, truthfulness, and fragility, end quote. McGill Christine goes so, goes so far as to say that this is a possible instance of the brain intuitively cognizing itself. Uh, music is certainly no exception with the arts as well, as Renaissance music saw an explosion of melancholy themes, requiems, and devotional works of uh, the Passion of the Christ, as well as uh, many unrequited love ballads. Its complex polyphony, harmony, and false relations place an emphasis on the whole rather than the parts. Again, you'll be, as you can probably tell, the, the right hemisphere is really kind of dominating this. Um, Melancholy in general experienced the favor of the Renaissance, and we'll recall to earlier chapters, the right hemisphere is the melancholic one, the left hemisphere is the optimistic one. Um, Quote, melancholy in the 16th century was commonly associated with wit, intelligence, wisdom, and judiciousness, end quote. It is also during the Renaissance that we first see the intermingling of melancholy and joy. Quote, that sadness and pleasure intermingle was hardly accepted till the Renaissance, end quote. The Gilchrist, taking an aside to go on the differences between longing and wanting, then moves on to talk about the view of art in the Renaissance on the whole. The consensus of the Renaissance time is that the artist was something inspired, seeing something other and sharing it with the world, presenting a new thing, not just representing it. With its love of nature, its appreciation of the connectedness of all things, its viewing of the world as something both hidden and revealed, something semi-transparent, it truly embodied much of the right hemisphere's way of thinking. But the times, they are changing. And with that, over to you, Sam. Sorry, I was just eating a knockoff Trader Joe's Pringle, which caused me to get distracted. At least I didn't miss a space capsule. And if anybody got that, I'm proud. If not, 
you probably doing more productive things last night. Anyway, the Reformation. Um, so he starts off his discussion of the Reformation by looking at the fact that the left hemisphere is basically always responding to the representation of the world that the right hemisphere gives it. And he says that there are two responses that it can give. It can either respond with a longing for the right hemisphere's world and indeed farther further bring that forth, which is what you see with that melancholy sense um, in Shakespeare. Or it can just reject it. It can see this re uh, representation and reject the, the right hemisphere's wider world. The Renaissance is the former, but the latter is the decline in the metaphysic, uh, metaphysical in the ceremony and the rituals of the Middle Ages, ultimately leading to a lost understanding for what these rituals, rituals truly mean and the Reformation. He talks about how Luther is actually more concerned with authenticity and experience in the right hemisphere when you look at some of his um, writings. But this idea, this fine line that Luther was trying to walk of both um, eliminating some of the harmful practices of the Catholic Church and bringing it back to authentic Christianity was quickly annexed by a fully left hemisphere view that we need to critique not only just the images, but also the functional use of those images and um, distill the faith down to its parts or eventually to nothing. The Renaissance emphasized all realms melding into one versus uh, the Reformation, looked at everything, all the pieces, got rid of all those and just looked at the one thing, which was nothing when it took away all its parts. The Reformation, as Miguel Chris says on or quotes on page uh, 315, is the first search for certainty in modern times. The metaphor of the right hemisphere gives way to certainty of the left hemisphere. Um, and even though there's an attempt to find authenticity, it eventually takes it down a destructive path. Uh, absolution, absolutism cannot cope with metaphor. It has no language to be able to deal with that. And therefore, there's no way to work with images or liturgies or any of those ideas. Um, the left wanted to uh, represent all these things. So it tried to represent the body and the blood. But that's not the same thing as a metaphor. And the response to this from the Catholic Church was similarly based in the left hemisphere, that of transubstantiation, breaking it down into its constituent parts of exactly when those parts change from one substance to another, and also giving it a specific moment. It neglects the fact of the overall context of the Mass bringing forth this reality instead of specific words and a specific formula. Um, and this doctrine continues today. I'm sure Brevin and I will argue about that later. Um, this move to um, representation leads to an infinite regress. Uh, Miguel Cruz looks at some very interesting um, examples of images during this time where, or actually he's, sorry, he's looking at um, co uh, Corner's analysis of this, where there are several images um, with the engravings to the point of, this is the lamb, etc. Seemingly, the artist recognizes that just saying that this is the lamb doesn't, without the language of metaphor or without the understanding of metaphor, you have to say this is the lamb that represents the lamb that represents the lamb that represents the lamb infinitely. And so they would just put et cetera at the end of all these explanations. Uh, they were very aware of the infinite regress that this lack of metaphor created. One of the best quotes from this chapter um, that Milgram says is that sacrament becomes information transfer, uh, where language is far more important than the image. Uh, the left hemisphere, he says, is power hungry. Uh, quote, intuitive understanding is not under control and therefore cannot be trusted by those who wish to manipulate and dominate the way that we think. End quote. Left hemisphere does not trust intuitive thinking and the intuitive thinking that was necessary in order to act out these metaphors 
therefore it rejected it. Um, the left hemisphere also rejects the concept of the body. Uh, the body is, quote, the refractory context of experience. Um, and by having an embodied faith of traditional Christianity, you couldn't, you could only understand that through the context of a broader experience. As a side note, when I was reading this, this section at the bottom of 319, I thought that it had, that Miguel Chris was pointing out how the Reformation had a huge amount of Gnostic undertones, the desire to separate from the body and just look at the true information, or to use Gnostic language, the true divine wisdom of enlightenment in order to transcend. So same kind of idea coming up again here. Now, he makes a little bit of a divergence here to talk about division. Uh, he talks about how there are there are basically two different types of division. Um, the left hemisphere can divide things into pieces in order to generalize them, which is what we've been seeing here throughout most of the Reformation. However, the left hemisphere can also divide things in order for the, the right hemisphere to see them as individual entities along with a whole. And those two ideas are not necessarily in contradiction. We need to be able to see the individual for what it is, an individual um, alongside the entire whole. And that's why the right hemisphere is critical. He goes back to a little bit of um, analysis of Genesis, where uh, in in the story, the creation story in Genesis, God infinitely divides things and continues to separate. But out of that separation, he doesn't lead to a generalization as the left hemisphere would create, but he leads to um, individuals and ultimately creating something, a very right hemisphere sort of view. Uh, Miguel Chris then jumps back into looking at the Reformation and he talks about how Lutheranism, um, particularly in its government, is very bureaucratic and categorized. It's also far more legalistic and dispense punishment on an even stricter scale than the Roman Catholic Church. Looking at some examples of Galileo, how even though Galileo was is usually seen as being a horrible, you know, uh, being a martyr almost to the to the um, to the terrible Catholic Church that's anti-science, when you look at what was actually happening. He was given a fair amount of leniency, leniency that would have not been seen in the more generalized, formalized, and um, dogmatic Lutheranism. Um, churches became far more ordered um, with people sitting down in nice rows, and they were far less organic. People were not coming in, uh, sitting and standing, um, coming up, sitting down. That entire movement that takes place in the Mass, they were merely sitting in rows and listening. And this also comes from more of a, a combination of the church and state. Gov the government obtains a sort of divinity because it's been stripped out of the church um, without that metaphysic experience being injected into the experience of church. Um, the government ultimately is that representative. Um, and again, that idea of representation, again, comes from the left hemisphere. Ultimately, he finishes his passage with a powerful quote, in essence, the cardinal tenet of Christianity, the word is made flesh, becomes reversed. The flesh is made word. His next section is uh, the beginning of the Enlightenment. And basically, he says there are two phases to this, um, to, to the Enlightenment. We see a literary and humanistic phase of expansion, as well as a scientific and philosophical phase of contraction into rigid and dogmatic rules. Um, philosophy, quickly. Uh, with Descartes becomes far more general, but also more theoretical, obviously, left hemisphere. Um, and then he also talked about how the view of the self changes. That change initially is far more um, self-reflexive. He quotes a large amount of poetry from uh, Don, the Dunn or Don, Dunn, John Dunn, 
Done. Done. He quotes a large amount of poetry from Dunn, which is how he was seeing himself inside of others. Uh, the, the point that was, I guess, most impactful for me was when he was talking about how he sees it at, in some of his later poetry at the end of his life, he saw himself in the eyes of his physician where he could see what their emotion was before they even told him what his prognosis uh, was going to be, or they could spin it in some kind of positive way. Um, extremely self-reflexive and also extremely context-driven. So even in poetry, well into the Enlightenment, we're seeing the right hemisphere continue to be primary. Um, and these poets are able to pick life apart into its pieces without losing the implicit and the subtle and the indirect, exactly how the right and left hemispheres are supposed to work in tandem. Shakespeare and Dunn both seem to be aware of the analysis of the nothingness that arises from overanalysis. But this is all brought to a halt by Bacon, uh, with the scientific revolution, where he sees that empirical understanding and uh, breaking things down using the scientific method leads to power. Um, and that is where he leaves the chapter heading into the Enlightenment. Quite the cliffhanger. I know. wonder what's going to happen. You know, I, I would love to see a cross-examination Taylor and McGilchrist. Like, imagine a secular age read through the lens of neuroscience. Like, uh, what I've been saying, we need a chart of... Charles Taylor, Ian McGilchrist, Alistair McIntyre, get all their, or honestly, just get them in a room and just let them go. That would I, be. I would yeah, solve my left ears. Like they're, they are all old. Yeah, I wonder yeah, I mean, if McIntyre would even care. I, that's a that's a fair point. I mean, he's still like the guy's still cranking out paper somehow. I have no idea how he's like ninety at this point, and he's still one of the keynotes every year at the the ethics conference, uh, the Notre Dame one. Though yeah. it is kind of funny, he, he like he clearly at this point has his beats. Where like I've heard him give the same answer to different questions, kind of year by year. Uh, so like he definitely has his talking points that he kind of sticks to. Uh, but he's still like his papers are quality. Yeah, um, my guess is we're going to want to spend most of our time with the Reformation. Uh, but I do just want to say, sorry, Stephen. I think... <laughs> no, this is a more interesting part for by far. I, uh, on, on the enlightenment portion though, um, I, I was actually, my takeaway from the section was he actually does some resuscitation of Francis Bacon that I wasn't expecting much like, um, uh, Heidegger. I, you know, didn't expect to like Heidegger, but he made me like, oh, okay, I could see it. Um, but he did this, that same thing with Francis Bacon where you, you know, you definitely do think of the caricature of, um, you know, in what is it in Wordworth's terms, you know, we dissemble to dissect or whatever where you're, you know you're pulling apart nature to discover her secrets and become uh lord and master of the earth and stuff but that bacon's uh project was much more reverent um which i had forgotten about since i read him in in undergrad and it was much more um the scientific method isn't a you know or at least in in his formulation it isn't a overall way to finally you know dominate all of the earth but rather it's Look at this amazing, crazy nature that we don't understand at first glance that deceives us and tricks us and is so complicated. So the only way we can start to understand is by being very careful and, you know, controlling the conditions of an individual experiment to, to gain some insight into this masterful thing that God has made. And that that's the context for his original insight. But then, of course, once you get to Descartes and some other people down the line, it becomes much more uh, domineering, let's say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, go ahead, Stephen. You're the scientist. Go ahead uh math, math guy not not really much into the science but it, it like it's under it's of all the projects that one is probably one of the most vulnerable to kind of the left hemisphere sneaking up and, and kind of domineering uh because it is a 
you are literally setting up a controlled environment to find out information that is very sterile. It's very cold. That's not to say that it's not good information. That's not to say that it hasn't produced some amazing results. I mean, the technology of the 21st century is like we've we've acquired more information than medieval kings. But I think the counterpoint to that would be somehow we have all this information and yet we're living in a post-truth era. Uh, and that that seems to speak to the uh, issue with kind of the more left mode uh, decontextualizing, stripping down an experiment and taking just kind of taking the cold bare facts rather than integrating it into a whole. Um, so it, it, it is kind of sad how such a noble project uh, is so vulnerable to this particular mode of thinking. Although McGilchrist has pointed out several times that like some of the best scientists in the world had clear left brain or sorry, clear right brain modes of thinking that helped them in their uh, in their quest. Yeah, Einstein was a big example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and sort of to transition back to the um, Reformation portion, even Aquinas, his life is is characterized in that same way, where you know he's known as this master of the uh, of, of of the doctrine, doctor of the church. And, you know, creates this massive intellectual integrated system for understanding uh, the great chain of being and just all this um, theology and philosophy. But at the same time, in the final analysis, a, a, a story that I've been told is, is that the end of his life is characterized by, you know, a deeply religious, spiritual experience after which he said, I can't write anymore after this. That's that's it's in it's in it's inexplicable beyond that. That's the um, what it actually is, and all this other work. Not that it's worthless, not that it's not useful, not that it's not good, but that it's ultimately um, you know only part of the picture and not fully uh, sufficient. So you know to to uh, tee up the plate very nicely for my own side of the you know the RCC aisle here. Uh, that's the that's the kind of return to the right hemisphere that one should make after attempting to explicate. Uh, the um, you know the inauthenticity of getting a little bit more functionalistic and 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 rationalistic, whereas what happened with the Reformation, at least according to McGilchrist's argument, and eventually not necessarily Luther, but everyone who came after him, was that they doubled down on it. That actually the the experience all is a lie. That the disconnection is real because the only real is the internal. Um, yeah. You know what it reminds me of? Uh, a Canticle for Leibowitz, where you, know you have all <laughs> you have all these monks who are parsing through this this information from a long forgotten age. This this these relics that they don't know what they are. They just know that they're important. And honestly, like having gone more high church, and then whenever I go back to to low church, there is this this element I feel uh, this this certain atmosphere of you guys are playing with an idea right now. I think you just forgot the context of it. Yep. Yeah, I agree with you there. Um, I mean, Brevin, that, that story about Aquinas, I'd never heard that before. And that's really interesting because last time I read Aquinas, not all Aquinas, little little bit of Aquinas, uh, <laughs> is that was my, my sense walking away from it is like, this is fine. Like there's nothing in here I see as objectionable, but it just seems like he's missing the point. Um, by just trying to break everything down in such a in such a clear question and answer format is it doesn't I could read all this and it doesn't get me I mean very much closer to what's the good and true and beautiful and this explanation of it makes perfect sense but the fact that he sees it contextualized as less important than the experience no yeah I I mean that's that's almost central to his story I'm saying now as I look to confirm that I'm not making stuff up uh, which is that that's why the Summa Theologica is unfinished is because he had that a- experience and was like, 
no, there's no point in, in finishing it. It's never going to measure up to mm -hmm. um, reality fully ex experienced. Uh, I feel like that's what we should re remember Aquinas for and not the thousands of pages that he wrote. Yeah. I mean, well, to be fair, it is, from what I've heard, some pretty freaking good theology. <laughs> it is. It is good. But All right, all right. But but let's get into the, uh, the Reformation um, stuff here. So I guess... I'll just Revenus start off. wants to start styling on the Protestants. Well, so so what I was going to say, so so my overall impression of this, given that I'm talking to two Protestants here, so I obviously converted. So you know, I'm I have my my rosy glasses. They're they're fully on. I I don't know if it's possible to to take them off. But just going through reading this, I'm I'm just curious, sort of like what I mean. Okay, Stephen has the eternal cop out of hovering in between Orthodox and Catholic, and he pretends like that's not. Well, no, he knows it's a problem, but he doesn't. He pretends like it's not an existential problem. <laughs> um, You're not wrong. Uh, but but for I guess I'm thinking almost for like non for committed Christians, but non-Catholics reading it, I just am hard pressed to to square with all like the. Frankly, in insidiousness, almost in the Protestant organization of churches and core theology that McGillchrist is talking about in terms of hemispheric differences, but it, it it all seems like so dark and just like destined to go wrong in in various ways. I don't know, like like I don't know how I would deal with that if I hadn't already converted. Yeah, I mean, Protestant here. Um, there's two main responses that I've. Um, settled on for this um both in reading mcgillchris and also before this um in studying like church history on this on the topic of like church and state because you're specifically looking at like the church and state um compromises partially i, I mean so yeah that's that's certainly part of it but the other part of it mm -hmm. is is just the reduction to words only is is the other part which of yeah. course you try and bridge with anglicanism but yeah i mean anglicans do not do that are indeed very very intentional to keep the kind of the metaphoric structure of the um of the liturgy not only the structure but the but the metaphor i guess as metaphor um regardless though i think that i mean mcgillicris really explained this in a way that i understood it well which is that it wasn't necessarily a protestant revolution that happened but it was merely continuing on a chain of moves from the right to left that had already been happening um we talked about this before recording but um like the move, like the Aquinas move, Aquinas becoming a lot more left hemisphere centered and that being carried through the Catholic church and then the um, doctrines of transubstantiation and all those kinds of things, um, doctrines around um, papal authority, not infallibility yet, that didn't come until the 1800s, but authority and structure that seemed intuitively to be very left hemisphere centric. Um, a lot of the reformers, in my opinion, were responding in good faith to those moves because they saw them as wrong. The problem was that the people that they were um, speaking to had been already conditioned to view this in a left, hemi in left hemisphere way. And so they would take the words of Luther, um, which are very, very carefully phrased as to try to harken back to true authenticity. Um, and they just take them and double down on the left hemisphere. So that, yes. would, be, that would be my Protestant response is that it's 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 yes the core of it was very left hemisphere focused but that's also a pro it was also a problem in the catholic church and is still a, a problem to a degree in the catholic church so sure. we're not going to get we're not going to get separated from the left hemisphere um by just converting one way or another except for maybe to orthodoxy but there's a whole other thing there 
Yeah, the the Orthodox adjacent nerd uh, over here will definitely point out that I uh, I think Sam's point of the systemizing of a lot of Christian doctrine, uh, purgatory is another one uh, where the Orthodox have a vague sense of sure maybe there's a sort of purgatory, there's a purgation that's part of theosis, but definitely not systemizing it on any level, um, other anything more than metaphor. The, the, the more West you get, uh, the more systemized and structured this becomes. Uh, and you can kind of, it's definitely not to say that orthodoxy hasn't changed over the last 2,000 years because it has, but it has more likely not changed less. And if you look at the two in time, you can kind of see two different snapshots and the Catholic Church, for better or for worse, is seemingly the more left hemisphere oriented, uh, a lot more structured, a lot more systemized, whereas the orthodox do seem to keep a lot more intuitive nature a lot more uh i mean they throw around they throw around the term mystery so often it's it's this thing that cannot be explained it can't be related it can only be experienced uh very right hemisphere though certainly the catholics do as well and that's not to perfectly absolve the orthodox yeah. i mean look at he has the example of, icon- yeah. of iconoclasm in the in the what eighth and ninth centuries Mm-hmm. when yeah. icons were just destroyed because even then they just there was a loss of that sense of metaphor that that metaphor that held in tension the space between the viewer and the icon mm-hmm. and and even i mean it demonstrates how sensitive that topic that 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 metaphor is but the moment that it was lost i mean it caused a revolution and mass burning of icons mm-hmm. so there's there's actually uh, a great story of uh saint stephen the new um so he was during the uh the time of iconoclasm uh he was one of the defenders of icons and uh he like he was arrested uh and the soldiers went to his prison to, to question him and you know they said you know like this is this is clearly wrong and he said okay can, do you have a coin uh and he, you know they give him a coin and he says okay so whose image and likeness you know kind of referencing christ and they say okay well it's the emperor's and then he throws it on the ground and stomps on it and says uh respect or disrespect to, uh, paid to the image is paid to uh the actual thing and they they proceeded to beat the tar out of them <laughs> uh that's excellent right yep uh so I, I i will grant that at least in terms of hemispheric differences it, it does seem from our very cursory you know thirty thousand foot view that the orthodox have the um the the top dog as it were however i deny stephen the ability to be fully smug he's shaking he's, he's shaking his hands in victory on 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 camera uh he he only gets to be 75 percent well you know what i'm not even giving you 75 percent. you get 62 percent <laughs> on this you don't get 100 percent until you goddamn convert <laughs> i get to be adjacent smug yeah you get to be adjacent smug uh, okay, but so so just to to, to loop back around to the uh, Protestant thing, and hopefully I'm not beating a dead horse, uh, but I but I can cut this out if uh, if it if it's too repetitive. So I mean, one can grant that in terms of broad swaths of hemispheric movements, that it's part of a larger I don't know, let's say Geist towards a left hemisphere becoming evil and and ruling everything. Granted, and you can also grant that Protestants, Calvin, Luther, etc., are are acting in good faith and and we should you know in as much as one can you know take them at their word that they're doing the best that they can determine as they're able given the constraints of their time blah 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 but with the benefit of hindsight though it does seem that well maybe the the the, the sabotaging is just is saying with the benefit of hindsight and that defeats where I want to go with it. But it's it seems undeniable both in terms from a theological perspective, but also with this added layer of the hemispheric perspective that it's just 
it's a profound tragedy and you know like wrong turn in in terms of history and and uh the christian faith to double down on the worst aspect or or or, or to take the worst aspects of the catholic faith and you know the perfunctory nature of the rituals the it's divorce it's it's lack it's lack of authenticity granted uh that you know that, that that happens periodically everywhere but then to double down on that and enter into this you know you know neo gnostic phase that we you know virtually continued to this day with repercussions building out that just seems you know again i happen to be on the side or i i i chose the side that gets to pretend like you know we were in, in the right here but it, it does seem uh profoundly tragic oh uh, certainly, I think tragic I, is the best description. It's the best depiction. Yeah, yeah. Both, I mean, both the schism and the Reformation are both the two greatest tragedies in Christian history. Um, mm -hmm. Like it, it's kind of the the church undoing itself. And so, yeah, like let's not let's not pretend that that was a happy thing or anything. Um, it it is it is particularly unfortunate that Luther did seem to throw out a, a lot of the the baby with the bathwater, as it were, um, throughout many babies with the bathwater. Uh, in that he saw like distinct rot forming. And instead of performing like delicate surgery, just decided to chop the entire limb off. And it's like, look, that that the person isn't better off now. Like you could have just you could have, you know, excised the wound and instead you you seriously did damage. Even like even if he was right and the limb needed to be removed, it, it's still like we can't say that we're better off for it. We're just better than we would be otherwise. Yeah, and and you know, to be fair to the time or whatever there's political ramifications too where yeah. you have you know german princes or whatever who want to be independent who are like ah oh, yes this is our pretext for whatever so it's it yeah. it's 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 not as if ideas are the only central playing uh or the only central figure here yeah you um, also i mean the, the to be fair to luther the catholic church did not respond well um no. he didn't he didn't start out trying to break off from the church he wanted to reform it and then things uh communication just did not go well um, I, I do have a friend who theorizes, I know about the schism, but also about the Reformation, that if modern communication uh, was available, uh, it wouldn't have happened. Just like, there's just so much time that allowed for so much uh, radicalization uh, to happen on both sides that they were, by the time they were able to actually get together and talk, it was just too late. But if they had been able to pick up a phone and hash out their differences, it probably wouldn't have gone down the way. No, and that was also part of the thing with Luther is that by the time that I mean, even when he was he had split, he was still trying to find some way to synthesize it with the teachings of the church. But at that point, his new now new religion that he'd accidentally created was being adopted by different princes. At that and the political authority of the Catholic Church said, "No way, we're not not working with this." Yeah, and that was what sealed it. It's always a dangerous thing starting a new religion. Too true. Too true, indeed. Uh, any other key points here we want to bring up on this chapter, aside from the fact that it's excellent and everyone should read it? It was a really, it was a really different take on the Reformation. I mean, I've studied it, the Reformation a, a bit, and I've never heard a take like this, where he was... I mean, I felt like he was pretty even-handed on both sides, and I think that he um, expounded upon the, the profound tragedy that... I think that really any Christian who studies this um, realizes. I think that he he encapsulated that in the best in the best way that I think I ever read. So yeah, I mean, and you know, stated in a word, um, the possibly the core issue with Christianity uh, in at least some ways that's persisted to this day. Um, you know that uh, in, instead of the word made flesh, the flesh made word, and all of the pathologies that have followed from that. You're you're so alone in your faith. 
there's 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 nothing to latch onto. There's no other people. It's just you have to get the words into. You have to pound them into your brain by yourself, and and well, that's how you're gonna that's how you're gonna figure it out. I mean, let's not characterize or caricaturize too much in that like something something Bible studies and cell groups and whatnot, where you are doing this together as a group. It's just the experiences I've had are. It may be with somebody who's like, if you're a bunch of high school kids, maybe with someone who's older in the church that has a bit more life experience, et cetera, et cetera. But like, it's typically not with somebody who's, you know, a trained minister or a priest or what have you. And it's still very cerebral. It's like, if you can just get the information in your head, you're good. What One of my friends actually brought up uh, the, the very interesting point. The whole like, man, if you just read your Bible every day, like think of how different your life would be. That statement only really works because 99% of people don't have the wherewithal to actually do that and call the bluff and realize after a year that their life really hasn't changed a ton. Um, <laughs> and it was like, ooh, that is some strong rhetoric. Whereas, like, certainly I don't want to knock on reading scripture. I, like, I have found that the times that I regularly read scripture are actually quite good. That said, I have noticed that the embodied practices of the Orthodox Church are certain, like, there is a difference. There's a difference in the way I relate with my church with my own spiritual experience that is very different than just mm-hmm. re- reading scripture. And there's also this, this great two-step, which I'll say this and then we should get, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. which is, which is with, uh, so like uh, with the, what is it? The great revival or the whatever with, with great Jonathan course. Edwards yeah. and, um, and emotion becoming such a core tenet of American Christianity. And that you have, um, you know, like the Pentecostals and, and, and stuff where your emotional experience of God becomes such a central thing. The, the context of that is again, the uh, men without chests and what, and what Lewis's argument is that, you know, you're, you divide the, you, you teach the head that the emotions are all false and don't point to anything real. And it's the people who are so cerebral and caught up in like the technical ethics of things that they're the ones who are most persuaded by emotions because they don't know how to deal with them. And that's and that's like the two step that I can see really, really strongly in non denom Protestantism, where there's like the cerebral read your Bible. That's the thing. There are there's like nothing to do really specifically. There's no life or like way to live. Um, but then it's just punctuated in between the hyper cerebral and then the hyper emotional. And that's what's supposed. That's like the, the bouncing back in between the two is supposed mm. to keep the, the cycle of your faith going. That's actually really well said. Yeah, that's that's really it. Yeah. Anyway, fascinating. All right, yeah. Uh, so I, I'm not sure what the what the function of the cut will be there. I can guarantee you that there's all sorts of off the record conversation that you, was fascinating and amazing. We talked about our friends and our family and how terrible they are, and it's 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 great. Uh, but you never get to hear it uh, because I deleted. Boy, it are you missing out? Boy, are you missing out on on our on unless our... you're our friends and family, in which case you're not missing anything. Oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, or you can subscribe to our Patreon where. <laughs> And, and get the unedited version. All the, <laughs> all, all the tea. Why do you think we're drinking tea here, folks? This is the tea farm. Um, all right, all right, all right. Okay, uh, but... Cut that out, please. No. <laughs> <laughs> this is the tea farm. The problem with the tea farm. That's the episode title. Okay, okay, okay. All right. But speaking of the inner lives, so I would say that all of us podcasters, all of us, all of us co-hosts, we are all friends. And the article that I have today is about... Uh, friendship, and specifically how the pandemic has erased entire categories of friendship. Uh, so the other, right off the bat, uh, notes that uh, friends, the word friends is a promiscuous a word. It likes to claim more and more territory and, you know, with potentially less and less meaning. I mean, we see Facebook friends, for example. Uh, but the kind of friendships that this writer in the Atlantic is is talking about is uh, 
a certain kind of friend, the kind of friend that you like meet at the bar periodically to watch a team that you're, you know, mutually distant from coworkers around the water cooler, that sort of thing. Uh, and, and, and this is the concept of uh, what some sociologists call weak ties. Uh, quote, they're the people on the periphery of your life, the guy who's always at the gym at the same time as you, the barista who starts making your usual order while you're still in the back of the line, the coworker from another department with whom you make small talk in the elevator, end quote. And sort of the general point of the article is just that casual friends and acquaintances can be as important to your well-being as family, that they fulfill a certain function in our social lives. And, you know, while things like our family, romantic partners, and our closest friends are the most essential things. These casual friends also fulfill their own niche, although I would say her examples aren't necessarily the best. It's mostly instrumental, like they're the ones most likely to help you get a job. Uh, but the but another loss of this um, uh, of these friends comes along with uh, changes in the way that your relationships with, with people who would be your uh, weak ties, uh, particularly in the time of the pandemic. That's the context for all of this, such as the loss of unstructured time which is sort of described as it's very un un uncomfortable for a manager to like directly be standing over someone's shoulder and telling them what to do. So what tends to happen uh, just sort of naturally is there's this there's this unstructured time where you stand around and talk to them for a few minutes afterwards as if to demonstrate that they're not just a cog in the machine. They're not just a tool that you're directing them to do something. And that's where, you know, some minor relationships form. But in the time of the pandemic, it's very difficult with work from home to do things like that. Things like Zoom calls and phone calls are directional. They're action oriented. They have a, uh, a, a, a time cutoff. And there's a lot of this in-person interaction that builds these weak ties that is almost completely lost. And this article also uh, made me think of uh, an article that we've covered before on the podcast talking about sort of concentric circles of friends and uh, the types of friends that we have, which are uh, going from least knowable to, to your closest friends, uh, First is acquaintances. Uh, these might be weak ties. Then there's kindred spirits who are, uh, quote, these magnifiers of spirit to whom we are bound by mutual goodwill, sympathy, and respect. But we infer this resonance from one another's polished public selves, our ideal selves, rather than from intimate knowledge of one's of one another's interior life, personal struggles, in inner contradictions, and most vulnerable crevices of character, end quote. And these are the kind of friends that I sort of think about you might find in a reading group. You're all there, you're, you're wanting to be the best that you can be and read a good book and um, grow intellectually, spiritually, morally, et, et cetera. And then the final level, of course, is friends who get to see the non-ideal side, who get access to your inner life and who can accept both your aspirational self, but also your uh, fallible real selves. And I thought the, these two articles just uh, worked very well uh, in contrast to each other, just that this that there's this broad... Uh, spectrum of friends and both to, you know, sort of look forward to rebuilding uh, weak ties when the pandemic finally uh, is conquered, at least to some degree, and recognizing the importance of that, but also an ever-present reminder to uh, take care of your actual friends, your friendly friends, uh, who are more than acquaintances, more than kindred spirits, uh, and are truly friends. Um, also, she says that the Roaring Tronies will be back and the parties will be great, so I'm looking forward to that. Ooh, yes, please. I mean, really, the Roaring Twenties are sort of here already because we have gotten speakeasies now. Oh, yeah, that's true. You're so right. Mm-hmm. Time is sickly. Yep, mask easies. Mask yeah, no, it, it was crazy. Like, uh, I visited Washington, and uh, my friends and I were walking around outside, and uh, they, they live in a, a smaller town, and 
uh, they, they said like, Hey, you want to, you want to see the restaurant that's quote unquote closed. And, uh, I was like, yeah, sure. And so we walk around the corner and like, sure enough, the windows are blacked out. Um, like doesn't look like anyone's there. And then we get a little closer and we see like little, like little light through the, the, the cracks and, uh, we hear music and conversation going on inside. Like definitely, definitely open. Wow. Yep. But yeah, I, I like this article. This is, um, yeah, there is something kind of deeply sad about the idea that you're no longer building kind of those, those quote unquote weak ties. Um, I, I recall being quite surprised by how close I had gotten with my work team and how much I had missed them, uh, kind of doing re- uh, remote work, but, uh, they, they actually did a pretty good job at having continual, um, kind of an open meeting where you just go and you'd be on mute most of the time. But if you want to talk about a funny article that you read or you know, what's going on in the day or ask a question or whatever, like they, there was still that quasi community, but still, you know, still definitely wasn't the same. And there's kind of a, a sad uh, dearth of that type of relating that's going on now. Very much looking forward to that uh, not being the case. Yeah. I mean, I hadn't actually thought about this until reading this article, Brevin, but you know, the pandemic hit at the end of my senior year of college. And so especially like a small Christian liberal arts school, um, I mean, your entire life are these weak ties. I mean, everybody I was living with were weak ties that I had had kind of, you know, met via random circumstances of having to be thrown in the same dorm with them. And then we got a house together and, you know, all that, everyone I knew from class, I mean, 24-7 was all weak ties. I wouldn't say I had really any close friends who were still at the school, either they were on, well on, graduated or from different sources or whatever. Um, And so when all that stopped, it never came back. And I don't think we're really, you really have an opportunity to form as many weak ties as you do in undergrad, um, maybe working in an office, but even then, not nearly as much. So yeah, yeah I mean, that I, I, that was something I never thought about, but definitely um, impacted me. Yeah, I, I actually have found, uh, so a couple of my classes uh, have opened uh, Discord servers and help each other out with their homework. And that has been kind of a delightful, uh, another chance at weak ties, although still, I mean, something, something online is not quite as good, but it's still a simulacra of it, at least. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Also, yeah, speaking yeah. of COVID, we're approaching the one year anniversary of my famous statement, I think. Oh, oh. I'm going to make a Facebook post about that. Oh, God. Um, yes. I would love to. It was just the audio clip. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Brevin, you weren't uh, even there. That's. I know. Did uh, I. One question. Did I agree with him? No, I you remember. didn't. You, you just kind of wryly said, we'll see how well that ages. Damn, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure you did. I, I, I'll go double check for my own sanity, but I'm pretty sure you were just like, Huh, interesting. Cynic or um, profit, we will never know. <laughs> but but on a more serious note, like on the article, um, I was also listening to uh, a podcast the other day talking about like modern relationships and how the dating scene has really um, shifted because of COVID because like, especially in major cities like New York City, Boston, DC, Chicago, it's very much bubble oriented. And so, you know, previously it was like, if somebody, you know, if you saw somebody multiple times, that was like a really good sign. Now it's if you're invited into their bubble, that's like you you've made it. Mm. Um, I mean, the next the next step is like you're going back home together or whatever. And so it's really a weird. It's totally changed the dynamic because now relationships have like so much more um, at risk because you could risk getting sick from with that person. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, I don't know. I guess that none of us really have much experience with that um, for different reasons. Not really. Actually, this was just all the government's plan to stop casual dating. 
Um, now, now people have to be serious about it. When we say, you know, in sickness and in health, we mean it. All right. That's, uh, that's how it's supposed to work, folks. I, I don't make the rules. I just make them up and write them down. Oh, and is that why Biden's trying to end COVID in the first hundred days? Is so that we, we start casually dating again? Yeah, it's to bring hookups back. It's it's the godless okay. Democrats. They want to bring back hookups. <laughs> hookups. So there are more. Yeah. Okay. Oh, no. <laughs> We're not going down that rabbit hole. But speaking of rabbit holes, sometimes if you're running across a gorgeous green field, you're in that right hemisphere, you're running, it's beautiful. You're in Ireland, let's say, and it's just as far as the eye can see, green rolling hills. And if you step in a rabbit hole and break your ankle, you might be angry. And when one is angry, one might rant. Steven, what do you have for us? I have exhaustion and a caffeine-fueled mind right now. Uh, so physics, uh, I don't have much to rant on it otherwise, uh, other than, holy frick, it's hard. <laughs> and, and the worst part about physics, I think, is actually the... Uh, some viewers may uh, know what I'm talking about when I say Taylor series, uh, which are ways of approximating equations. But the thing about those is you can approximate them really, really well if you take a very accurate picture of them. But physicists don't do that. They'll just take like the first one or two in the, in the thing called the Taylor series, which means it's not accurate at all. But then they'll just kind of wave their hands and say, yeah, I mean, it's, it's close enough. So we're good. And as, as a guy that's only done pure math, holy frick, it is, it's something that will send me into a, like a, a twitchy-eyed stupor every single time. Uh, so physicists abusing, uh, abusing accuracy uh, never fails uh, to, to get me all riled up. They'll, they'll say pi is three. It's like, no, pi is definitely not three. Okay, it's 10, whatever. It's awful. <laughs> it's awful. It sort of sounds like what would happen if you taught like a like an undergrad who doesn't understand math, like how to use the regression function in Excel, and then mm -hmm. just told him to like do projects, maybe? Yep, except these are some of the most brilliant minds of the 21st century, so I can only critique them so much, mm -hmm. I guess. But fair, it still right? irritates me. Pi is between 3 and 10. You're not wrong, Sam. You're not, you're not wrong. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of the most brilliant minds of the 21st century, Sam, what do you have for us? Wow. That was an unusually wholesome compliment. Thank you. Um, the uh, I don't I don't have a rant prepared, but the Super Bowl was yesterday, and we're not going to talk about the game itself because that will be bad for for my friendship with Brevin. But um, the commercials are always a highlight, and this year the commercials were unusually um, comedic. They were trying to invoke the sense of comedy and laugh out loud experiences of Super Bowl commercials of old, and I'm that we've been strangely lacking for the last four years. And so I have to wonder whether we are, um, whether this is coming out of a desire to completely forget the wasteland that we are in right now, or merely is now permissive due to um, any kind of shifts that many have acknowledged as political. I don't know. I'm not going to rule on that. But it was quite strange to see a lack of, um, or a comparative lack of political commercials uh, compared to the last few. Super Bowls. Is that much of a rant? It works, but you're wrong. Um, so like the lack of politics, you're right about that. But in terms of the commercials themselves being comedic, the commercials were garbage. Oh, they weren't actually that funny, but they were trying oh, to be. Okay, you they were, were they intent. Were, they, like, no, no, the intent. I'm talking in, completely in intent. I'm not talking in... Okay, in, I was really worried no. there that, that your no, sense no, of no. taste was They were the not funny. I mean, okay. there were a couple that were kind of funny, but no, I mean... They weren't great, but like compared to last year where there were, I mean, I don't remember a single one from last year, except for the Mike Bloomberg commercials. 
Um, <laughs> yep. Remember Bloomberg. Uh, Memento yeah. Mori. Uh, <laughs> Memento Bloomberg. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, I so, don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair. Fair, fair, fair. Uh, so for, misery rant. For my rant, uh, I also have something about the Super Bowl, and it's about the halftime show. So halftime shows, you love them, you hate them, you have to read think pieces about them when people identify with their messages or get all reactionary against them. Uh, at absolute best, you get a couple decent memes out of them, uh, like Left Shark. So for my part, sort of like Sam, actually, I'm grateful that we had like a relatively inoffensive and banal halftime show. And I caveat that just because I'm sure that someone out there is like absolutely furious at the Red Jackets or something. I don't know. And kudos to that person for sa- for satisfying every single other one of their needs on, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And that's just like the only thing that they have to get at. Um, and f- And on the weekends part, you know, good job singing. Good job dancing. Good job giving us some meme potential with the mirror room thing that's already, you know, blowing up. Uh, oh, and also for r- reminding us that, you know, that like fascism likes fashion and that it can look pretty compelling, you know, with like snappily dressed minions moving in, in a, like a coordinated body politic, you know, seeing all that like Rousseauian will out in public is just, it, it's kind of sexy, you know? And uh, well, anyway, I've said too much and I'm glad I don't have to say anymore. Uh, but I, for one, was happy to see the return of a halftime show that hopefully everyone will not be talking about in like a day. What what red jacket thing? Were there red jackets? Yeah, all the guys uh, were were wearing red jackets with uh, diaper f- uh, face mask and strutting about the field in like a giant uh, coordinate. Yeah, social distance like square. It 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 looked like a like a Mussolini rally. It was great. Diaper mask. Yes. I, for one, thought it was one of the best halftime shows in my Super Bowl viewing experiences. And I don't take that lightly. I think it will. I think that we'll look back on this and realize that it was one of the better ones. No, I mean, I I'm not necessarily in competition with you, but uh, so I I guess we'll see. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't Prince or Michael Jackson because those are the two greatest, but it was still pretty good. And it didn't have Left Shark. If It only would have had Left Shark. Ah, alas. Alas. Uh, well, speaking of alas and alack, it is time to end the podcast. Uh, so for everyone here at the Problem With Reading podcast, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. And uh, go make some weak ties better than weak tea here on the Tea Farm, which is the name of our podcast now. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, Tea Farm. <laughs> No, we're not doing that. <laughs> that's that's not going to happen. Welcome to the tea farm. <laughs> Ye gods. Uh, that was funny.